Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This, this real sense that Epstein had gone beyond being a friend. He was practically a sort of surrogate member of the Staley family, to an extraordinary degree, really. I'm Francine Lacroix. And I'm David Merritt. And this is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London. We're going to take a dive into one of our top stories that we have out this week that centres on the details behind the relationship between Jeffrey Epstein and former Barclays chief executive Jess Staley. And, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of emails, communication between the pair that the Bloomberg team have been diving into for months now. And we're really pleased to have join us in the studio, the team responsible for this investigation. We have Harry Wilson, our finance reporter, who covers the ins and outs of the banking industry. Jonathan Browning, our reporter across financial crimes and the courts in London. And his counterpart with me here in New York this week, Ava Benny Morrison, who is on the legal team here. Welcome all to In the City. Thanks for having us. Clearly, this was a real group effort on this story. There's a huge amount of information to unpack here for a, a story that really does lift the lid on this relationship that's caused a huge amount of introspection, both at Barclays and also JP Morgan as well. Harry, could you kick us off with how this story came about? What first prompted you to take a look at all of this information? And when did you start working on it? So I think the Jess Staley Epstein story has been gestation for several years now. We've known that they had these contacts. Obviously, it was the reason that Jess Staley stepped down in the first place as Barclays CEO. So we've known that there was this relationship. What we've got, though, in the last, I guess, sort of six to nine months is a really detailed picture coming through legal disclosure, whether that's from the US Virgin Islands case uh, against JP Morgan or a separate now settled legal case, Jane Doe 1. And that has come with it thousands of pages of legal documentation, which really has kind of given us a unprecedented insight into, into relationship, you know, how it worked on a daily basis. And you really get the kind of sense of the depth of friendship that had developed between Jess Staley and Jeffrey Epstein. And I guess when we started seeing just how much was coming out, there kind of came a point where we thought, well, we've really got to start putting all this stuff together and trying to join up the dots and see what the picture looks like when you take a sort of step back and, and look at it, not just on the sort of, you know, that day's particular headline, but what it looked like in the round. Jonathan, we're four years on after Epstein's death in prison by suicide. It's amazing that it's taken this long to have all of the emails. This is because there are new probes or new lawsuits. Yeah, it's the US litigation that has been instrumental in uncovering all these emails between the two. There is a separate UK investigation that is being conducted by the Financial Conduct Authority. That's into whether or not Jess Staley misled the board about this very issue, about the relationship that he had with Epstein. And we are waiting for the results of that. But that has been a entirely kind of confidential probe. We've learned nothing from the FCA. We're still waiting for that decision to come through. 
it's the disclosure process in the US that has been so valuable and has been so revealing about the way that these two incredibly powerful men essentially boosted each other the whole way through their career. Ava, so it was the US case that first of all shone a light on these emails. Talk us through the process of going through all of these communications and how you pieced together the story from the disclosures from the court. It felt like every single day there were some new disclosures or emails between Epstein and Staley that were being unredacted as part of these two court cases. So it wasn't all in one go. It was a kind of slow drip drip of all of these communications. Yes, exactly. It's been a drip drip since uh, both the cases were filed separately at the end of last year. And it's been very piecemeal, bit by bit, looking at some revelation in a new email that sheds light on the depth of their friendship. So it was really helpful to take a step back and enlightening, I guess, for Harry to put together this timeline of all of the emails and correspondence between the men in correlation with different events that were happening, like Jeffrey Epstein being convicted of soliciting a minor for prostitution in Florida and what kind of conversations the pair were having at that time and what was going on inside the bank. Were you shocked by what you read? Yes. Some of the emails and the conversations that were happening between the two, shocking, A, because it was on Jess Daly's work email, which sort of beggars belief, and B, the contents of it, suggestions about women, um, apparent references to Beauty and the Beast and Snow White, which is alleged to be about different women that maybe they had seen the weekend before. So that kind of communication and that correspondence was quite, I suppose, shocking to read. And Jonathan, you say basically the relationship between Staling and Epstein went beyond that of, of banker and client. What do we actually know? Well, I think we've discovered and within kind of Harry's timeline was the way in which they were in one sense quite reliant upon each other, that there are repeated and regular instances where Jeffrey Epstein is kind of involved in the JP Morgan strategy, in the JP Morgan kind of plans for big deals perhaps with Bill Gates, for instance. And he's putting kind of Jess Daly forward all the time. And we can see the whole way through the timeline, this sort of regular intervention from Epstein to kind of push Jess Daly forward. And it's mutually beneficial because on the other side of the coin, we have the disclosure where we can see Epstein being kind of supported and protected by Jess Daly. Give us a little bit more of the colour of this sort of mutual support network, Jonathan. So there were, you know, stays in Caribbean islands. There was promotion of each other's work. So tell us how exactly all this sort of backslapping manifested itself. The two are obviously very close personally to each other. Even after Epstein was jailed in Florida in, in June 2008, less than a fortnight later, Staley writes to him going, I miss you. The world is a tough place. Hang in there. Just a few days later, he's asking for Epstein advice on his pay negotiations with Diamond. And, and sorry, this is and this is after so Epstein has been convicted at this point. Yeah. And Jess Daly asks him for some tips on how to negotiate his salary. Yeah. Um, Epstein replies, "Do not give in. I'll try to call you later." And how much was it he was asking for? The discussion goes, "Tell him, which is Diamond, a one million dollar increase to twenty five million dollars." So these are numbers, obviously, that are beyond the imagination of most people. And one of the real shocking things for the public, I think, in the whole Epstein scandal was the way in which 
the establishment or establishment figures like Jess Staley, and of course we talked about you know Britain around people like Prince Andrew, continued to communicate despite his convictions and despite the things that he had been proved guilty of doing. Ava, as you went through these emails and you see the timeline that you've referenced on here, what were some of the more surprising things that these men continued to discuss despite what he'd been convicted of? I think exactly what Jonathan was saying, the fact that Staley kept going back to him for advice on different things, pay negotiations, and Epstein was organising meetings with politicians, global figures as well for Staley to meet all around the world. And Staley as well went to him for advice about his daughter's career uh, and for help to actually get her into a course at Columbia University in New York. So there was that mutually beneficial professional relationship. But I think Staley, based on the emails and the kind of language he was using, really saw Epstein as a true friend. And when he was released from prison in Florida in 2008-2009, he in one of the emails he talks about how nice it was to be able to see his friend in New York again and give him a long hug. So that sort of illustrates how deep the friendship was as much as it was a professional relationship as well. So as you read these emails, the extent of this friendship seems much deeper than everyone thought. I think one one episode really sticks in my mind, which is a March the 5th, 2011 email. So this is right about the time when the bank's in deep in discussions about whether Epstein should remain a client of the bank. Compliance clearly wants him out. Management will clearly wants him out. But Staley remains as resolutely loyal to him as ever. And he also starts to talk about just how important he is. And so he writes, Debbie, this is his wife, Deborah. Debbie and I were talking tonight about what you've meant to me and Alexa, Alexa being his daughter. You have paid a price for what has been accused, but we know what you have done for us. And we count you as one of our deepest friends and most honest of people. And Epstein then just replies with a single word, family. And this actually, this word family gets used time and again in emails. What are the actual accusations here? I mean, this is not only allegedly just daily keeping him as a client when he probably shouldn't have. There are darker aspects to, to this relationship. Yes. So one of the sort of more disturbing aspects of the case are the allegations that Jess Daly wasn't just a sort of passive witness of these things, but was a, a actually himself an assailant in one of these allegations. Now, obviously, he has denied these allegations, but that is actually part of what, what forms a JP Morgan case against him, which at the moment, obviously, that's the only thing that we see. But JP Morgan are also going after records related to US law enforcement uh, records related to some of these aspects. And I guess could be particularly difficult for him, particularly given the size of the potential JP Morgan claim against him. So figures have been bandied around in the tens of millions, but JP Morgan could clearly go after him for, for damages as well as compensation, which could be incredibly expensive. One of the key legal questions in the litigation over here when it comes to Jess Staley, was he acting within the scope of his role? And an argument that he could make, people who work in similar positions could make, is he's in the business of managing relationships and bringing business to the bank. And he's certainly outlined in some arguments that he was acting within the scope of his employment. JP Morgan, though, has accused him of being involved in sexual misconduct, which Staley strenuously denies. So they're arguing that, well, that's definitely not within the scope of your job role. But I think a lot of people are looking at some of the allegations that are coming out about Jess Staley and the way that he was presenting himself and communicating with Epstein 
and asking questions about, well, what is the definition of that job and could we land in hot water for how we're dealing with our clients as well? Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So, Harry, when you look at this, where were the compliance officers of J.P. Morgan? So I think this is quite an interesting thing. So one of the key moments that we picked out in in this story is uh, January of 2011. And at this point, you have this sort of extraordinary sort of confluence of events. So for one, you have Jess Daly that month actually goes and visits on his yacht. He sails to Epstein's Island, while Epstein apparently isn't there. But at the same time, Epstein is also trying to set up a meeting with him with Bill Gates, which... It's not clear if that actually took place. And then equally also, as, as Ava previously mentioned, at, at this time, Epstein is appearing to help Staley's daughter into Columbia University, into a, an elite program. And right at the moment this is happening, in the backdrop, you've got compliance who are basically saying, we want this guy out of the bank. So on the one hand, you have these incredibly close contacts between Jess Daly and Epstein, but also he's also there as a kind of arbiter on whether... Epstein can remain a client of the bank. Now, the bank itself, at that point, you've got emails suggesting that the head of the private bank actually wanted him gone. You've got compliance effectively saying, we don't think having this guy is a good idea. And this is January 2011. I should add, Epstein actually leaves the bank in July 2013, so two and a half years later before he actually goes. And it's very clear from a lot of these emails that the only reason that he remains a client of the bank, at least this is the opinion of staff at the time, is that it's Jess Daly's relationship with Epstein that basically saves him. And of course, after all of this, Harry, he's hired as chief executive of Barclays, one of the most prestigious jobs in, in banking in the UK. How is someone with this relationship that has been analysed by JP Morgan, how are they able to walk into that sort of job? I don't think that the relationship had really been looked at at that point. You know, there have been kind of odd sort of stirrings here and there that the two were very close and this sort of thing. But it wasn't actually a, a, a well-known thing, I guess, in, in the world of finance. It, it might well have been very well known, at least among some people in, inside JP Morgan. But it hadn't actually got out into the sort of the wider world. And it's only now that with hindsight, we can see just how close they were and how obvious it is that they had this, this tight bond. 
but but at the time it it was uh, I, I guess it was hearsay speculation you know there wasn't really much to it there was the odd story that came out but there wasn't really anything substantive one of the things that happened kind of when um staley was hired is that diamond says in his his deposition for this case that he was asked by the barclays chairman whether there was anything he ought to know about jess staley before he hired him and he said no diamond said now with that hindsight he'd have given an entirely different answer I guess part of it is also client confidentiality. So if you look at the scheduled meetings, I think between over a seven-year period, right, this is from 2009, 2015, there were about 60 scheduled meetings. We don't know how many of them actually took place. But is that unusual for a, you know, a, a, a big client of a bank? For someone in Staley's uh, position at the time, I think that number of meetings goes above and beyond what one would expect. Even in the final year um, at the bank, he had 14 scheduled meetings just in 2012. I suppose the point to make there as well is he, at that point, he, he had no dealings with the asset management private bank. You know, he'd been promoted to the chief executive of JP Morgan's investment bank in, in 2010. So he was well out of the sort of management remit where he might have needed to know the clients. This was obviously something he chose to do. Do we know if Jess Daly was the only executive Jeffrey Epstein was emailing with? So we know that he was also emailing with Mary Erdos, who remains at JP Morgan. She's the chief executive of their global asset management arm. And the, the two of them, it, the communications there aren't as frequent or quite as warm as between Staley and Epstein. But equally, there were a fair few of them, and quite a few of them were quite friendly. So there's been open questions there about what her own role in this uh, has been. Again, we should say that obviously. JP Morgan themselves have played down the links there and said that um, her behaviour at all times was above board. But clearly, obviously, as more information comes to light, the picture is developing. And this is very much a, it still looks like a developing picture. How much business was Epstein bringing to to JP Morgan? Is it difficult to, to have a number on that? You can get a rough idea. So he had several hundred million dollars worth of assets with the firm. And it looks like he'd been a, a customer of the bank perhaps since around the, the early 1990s. So in that sense, you know, a customer that's got, say, argument's sake, at least two, three hundred million dollars in the bank would have constituted a very significant customer of the bank. And obviously that would probably generate a, a, a substantial amount of revenue. And that's before obviously you get into all the other various ties and, and things that he might or might not have been doing for the bank um, over that period. For example, he was also involved in introducing JP Morgan to some of the figures at Highbridge Capital in the US here, and JP Morgan ended up with a stake in that fund as well. So there was the introductions side of it as well, all the people that Epstein was introducing to JP Morgan and Jess Daly in particular. Ava, talk us through what happens next with this case. What sort of timeline are we seeing and how do you see things progressing from here? One of the cases has settled. That was the case brought by a victim of Jeffrey Epstein, J. Doe One. She reached a settlement with JP Morgan for $290 million several weeks ago. Now there's just one outstanding case left, the US Virgin Islands. Jeffrey Epstein had a private island in the US Virgin Islands, and that's where Staley went on his yacht, uh, as Harry mentioned earlier. The bank and the Territory are still litigating that. The bank has taken a bit of a harder stance with the US Virgin Islands case, saying you're essentially being a bit hypocritical here because you allowed him to live there with $300 million in tax breaks and lax sex offender monitoring. So I think that they will fight that a little bit harder. We're just going to wait and see how that pans out in court. 
And Jonathan, in terms of the FCA investigation, that is still pending, right? It's still pending. There were initial findings that we know of that seemed to imply that the FCA had at least come down on the position that there had been some mischaracterization of the relationship. But Staley had indicated his intention to fight that. He had a process that went through the FCA, and then there's the question mark about whether it goes to the upper tribunal. And that might be a, a moment when it kind of comes out into the public domain in into the UK as well. Taking a step back from the situation for all the banks, and as Francie mentioned earlier, the regulators, what lessons are financial institutions taking from this? I mean, as Ava, you said it was astonishing that Jess Staley was putting these emails on his work email account. What are going to be the changes that banks put in place on the back of all of this, all of these revelations? I think one of the things that comes out of it is the lack of knowledge about who exactly was in charge here, because what you've got is compliance want him out of the bank, you've got the management of the private bank that wants him out, and then you have this kind of unofficial role that Staley is playing, because at this point he's not actually within the private bank asset management. And it's unclear who really was the final arbiter in these things. This has been a matter that's been debated in several of the depositions about who exactly would have had the power to have turfed uh, Epstein out of the bank. And I think if there's one sort of lesson coming out of this loud and clear is that banks must have some kind of much clearer chain of command in terms of who is actually responsible for these decisions. And obviously making sure that whoever that person is responsible for that decision isn't themselves compromised in some way due to their own closeness to the client in question. The other thing is that, yet again, it's a case of non, potentially of non-financial misconduct. And for the FCA, for the regulator here, it's in London, it's getting those very questions with Crispin Odi. And at this very moment, as to the extent of its supervision of his firm, of the firm that bore Crispin Odi's name, and it's in a very difficult position. It has a very, very difficult position, sort of responsibility to ensure an investigation is fair. But it's yet another example of a regulator kind of battling with what to do with culture and non-financial misconduct. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And me, Francine Lacqua. It was produced by Summer Sardi and Stacey Wong. Additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Harry Wilson, Jonathan Browning and Ava Benny Morrison. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.